0: We're going to talk about witnessing. We're going to talk about testifying. We're going to talk about testimonials and what God calls us to engage in as His children. So turning your Bibles or your mobile devices to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I want to reset where we are here. Corinth was a church in Greece that Paul had started. He had planted it, things were going well, and then they struggled with some divisiveness and some disobedience, and there were also some false teachers, and, and they began to form some camps and Paul wasn't as respected by some. They didn't respect his authority. They didn't really think that he had uh, the right qualifications. He, he wasn't uh, an impressive man. He was a small, sort of weak, wimpy guy. And he, he had sort of a shrill voice, apparently. And uh, a lot of people didn't like to listen to him. They didn't really think he was that impressive of a speaker. And as a result, Paul is having to deal with some people in Corinth, and he's really seeking to, to win their hearts, most of all to Christ and to His Lordship. But also, he cares about the people that he's led to Christ. He cares about them relationally. And so Paul is seeking to show that when God calls people to testify for Him, to witness for Him, it's actually not usually the strong. It's actually not usually the impressive. It's not the people who have it together and that are so skilled. But in fact, Paul says the most effective witnesses and Testifiers are those who witness out of weakness and those who witness out of brokenness and those who are often ridiculed. You see, because we're not testifying about ourselves, we're testifying about the God who exists and His Son, Jesus Christ. John Piper is a pastor and author, and he says there's two ways of looking at witness and testimony, and it involves scientific instruments. When you want to make something very, very small look bigger than it is, you use a microscope. Get out a thin plate of glass and you put a drop of blood on it, and you can look at the blood. You can see coronavirus, for instance. But regardless of what you're looking at, it makes something very, very small appear bigger than it actually is. A telescope, on the other hand, is focused on something very, very large a planet, the moon stars, even other galaxies. These are things that in and of themselves are huge. They're enormous, but to most people's eyes, they appear tiny. Piper says that God calls us to be telescopes, not microscopes. God isn't small and something we need to make big. God is huge. He's infinite. But in many people's eyes, He's small. So our role as Christian telescopes is to so magnify Jesus in our lives that people begin to see part of the size He really is. That's what it means for us to magnify Jesus Christ. And that magnification doesn't come about by our giftedness, but simply the power of the Holy Spirit using the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul reveals just how weak we are in ourselves. And how strong the gospel witness is. You'll find out in this passage that Paul talks about his sufferings and his brokenness. And that is what qualifies him and all of us to give powerful testimony. Even when we're weak. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. And follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. "'Working together with Him, then,' that is, with God, we are co-laborers with God, "'we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. "'For He says, "'In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. "'Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. "'We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry.'" But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How do we commend ourselves? Notice. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness... The Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. "...through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open." You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And He wants us to experience His magnification in our own lives and through our lives to a needy and broken world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege of knowing You and the privilege of providing testimony to others about You. God, give us a love for Jesus. And an excitement about the gospel that we couldn't stay quiet about. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So if you've been around Oak Mountain for long, you know our mission. Our mission is engaging every neighbor with a surprising power of grace. We're a church that is all about the message of grace. But... Grace, though it is for you, is not only about you. Grace is for the nations, engaging every neighbor. Who's our neighbor? The neighbor over the fence of our backyard, the neighbor over the mountain into Birmingham, the neighbor overseas to the nations, and even the neighbor over the pew in front of you, behind you, beside you. We are to engage every neighbor with the surprising power of grace. And yet I've found that so many of us struggle with feeling unworthy or ill-equipped when it comes to sharing testimony or witness about Christ. And I hope if nothing else, you already leave encouraged this morning because all we need to do is talk much about the greatness of Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel and we will be effective witnesses. So four ways that we experience strength and weakness through testimony. First of all, receive grace productively. That's what Paul says at the beginning of the passage. Don't allow grace to have no effect, to have no consequence In and through your life. Look at verse 1. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What is the grace of God? Well, we covered it last week in 2 Corinthians 5. Where we are told that through the work of Christ, we have been reconciled. We are born in hostility before God. We are born as his enemies, and yet Christ came to reconcile us to God. If we've transferred our trust from our own religiosity, our own attempts at goodness, and we have trusted in the finished work of Christ alone, his obedient life and substitutionary death, and and we trust and hope in that alone, adding nothing of our own efforts, to trusting in Christ. God promises that we have been reconciled. Enemies have been made friends. And then we also saw that the grace of God means that we're forgiven because of the work of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. God poured out his anger and wrath upon Christ on the cross And if we hope in Christ, if we transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus and the promises of grace, then we are promised we're forgiven. That is, God chooses to not count our sins against us. As far as the east is from the west, so much as he separated us from our sin. And then we also learn that we're made righteous. We're we're declared righteous, I should say. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's one thing to be forgiven. You wrong somebody, oh, they forgive you. It's another thing to be declared in the right. Think about this. as If you know Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you as having always been and forever being in the right. Now, clearly that doesn't make, mean we make mistakes, it's, it's what the work of Christ has gifted to us. God looks at us as if we'd never sinned nor been a sinner and as if we had always been perfectly obedient. Now, are those just words to y'all? If we really believe this good news, It's the most exciting thing anybody could ever experience. I mean, there's a lot of talk this week about a vaccine for COVID. (laughs) Compared, Compared to the gospel, a vaccine for COVID is not even worth talking about. And yet, it's on every news station all the time. It's covering the newspapers and the magazines. That's all anybody's talking about is a vaccine for COVID. And we have the cure for the brokenness of the universe. Do we believe that? What are you excited about? What gets you fired up? You know, th- there's all kinds of things. If, if someone's in love, what do they do? They talk about that person. You talk about what you're excited about. And if you're not talking about something, it's because you're not excited about it. It's as simple as that. I'm not excited about Penn State football this year. I normally am. Why? Because we're terrible. And because we're terrible, I don't want to talk about it. So don't ask me about it. But what we're excited about, we can't keep quiet about. So try this on for size. If you nor I are not magnifying Christ before others there ultimately is only one reason we are not excited about knowing Jesus he just isn't Someone for us to be excited about, apparently. But we know better. We know the gospel is true. And so we need to repent of receiving the grace of God in vain. And treating it, the word vain means empty. Treating it as if it is nothing. Treating Jesus as if he's small and insignificant instead of exalting him before the eyes of others. You know, the other reason why we're supposed to to really uh, receive grace productively and reflect upon grace all the time is because uh, not only will you not share what you're not excited about, but you'll never share Christ if you have no joy. You just won't. The one thing Satan does to shut down Christians more than anything is to try to steal their joy. In Galatians, Paul says, What happened to all your joy? If you don't experience joy, you won't be excited about Jesus. Now, here's the mistake many Christians make we try to find our joy in the same thing the world tries to find its joy in in circumstances, in relationships, in resources in experiences. The Bible says that's not where our joy is. Our joy is in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And that's why so many of us are not excited about Jesus. Because we actually think we're going to find joy elsewhere. But if we truly come to grips with the only person that will ever give us joy and the only content that will ever give us joy is the person of Jesus and the content of the gospel. And then we'll begin to be more excited about sharing it. Well, how are we supposed to live to receive grace productive? Look at verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. Now listen, God is sovereign, but we're also responsible. And what Paul is saying there is that we can put speed bumps in the way of grace into people's lives. I don't, I'm just letting the Bible say what it says. God's sovereign, and how we live, what we say, how we act, the attitudes that we exude can put speed bumps in the way of grace in other people's lives. Or we can speed up grace. Look what it says in verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And again, we're not commending ourselves. We're commending the God whom we're telescoping for people. We're magnifying Christ so someone they think is small will begin to appear as big as he really is. We've been given great grace. And we need to be productive with it. All the superhero movies that I'm a fan of, remember the long time ago now, the first one, the original Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire. He's this scrawny, wimpy, geeky kid. And uh, he's always getting pushed around. He's sort of a nerd. And he gets bit by a spider. And his DNA changes. And overnight, he gains new powers, and he he grows these muscles, and he's just strong. And even though uh, people can sense something's different, they really see it at school because this bully'd been picking on him. And Peter Parker, uh, Spider-Man, the kid, the geeky kid, uh, just beats the stuffing out of this guy. And uh, his uncle uh, is concerned, and he has a conversation And he says, you know, Peter, just because you can beat someone up doesn't mean you should. He says, I know you're changing. And Peter says, no, you don't really understand how I'm changing. But then the uncle says this, with great power comes great responsibility. We have been entrusted with the power, the world-changing universe-transforming power of the gospel. And Paul says, do not receive it in vain. Be excited about it. Be excited about Jesus. And then share it for all your worth. Receive grace productively. Secondly, reflect grace incarnationally. To incarnate Christ is to make Him manifest. It's, It's to embody Jesus. To embody His life. To embody His values. But Paul says, really, what it is is to embody his suffering. Look at verse 4. Paul says, you want to be a, a, a testimony for God. You want to feel equipped and qualified. He says it's qualification through suffering. Verse 4, afflictions, hardships, calamities. That means to be in a tight spot, to be under great pressure. You know, the Christian life is supernatural. Now, I hope that's not a news flash, Right? The Christian life is supernatural. If you remove the supernatural from the claims of Christ, there are no claims of Christ. If you remove the supernatural from Christianity, there is no Christianity. And yet, sometimes we fail to really believe that we supernaturally incarnate Christ as we suffer. Now, Paul's already covered this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says we carry about in ourselves the death and dying of Christ so that the life of Christ might be manifest, might be, as it were, incarnate. Now, what is Paul saying? Listen carefully. He's saying that some, kinds of, some kind of supernatural transaction occurs when Christians suffer, when we face hardship, when we face difficulty. And when by grace we endure those difficulties, God's Spirit opens people's eyes to see the suffering and death of Jesus Himself. Now, they wouldn't interpret it that way, but that's what Paul says is happening. In other words, their hearts are being worked on by the Spirit as the world sees us face hardship. The Spirit proclaims the death and burial and sufferings of Christ through us. That's amazing. We incarnate Christ as we bear up under sufferings. Afflictions, hardships, calamities. Verse 5, beatings, imprisonments, riots. By the way, all this happened in the book of Acts to Paul. And you may think, well, but I'm not being beaten. I'm not being imprisoned. I'm not experiencing riots. Well, have you experienced people's wrath, anger, and ridicule during the past nine months in any way? I know I have. What's our response? To fight back? Or is it to bear up and endure it? Trusting that there's a supernatural dynamic at work. And through our suffering for Christ. Now, we don't suffer as as fools. Okay? If we suffer as fools, that's our own fault. But if we suffer for the gospel, God promises that He will manifest the sufferings and death of Christ through our suffering. That's how we reflect grace incarnationally. But then He switches in verse 6, and He says there's also positive ways to incarnate Christ. Look at verses 6 through 8. Purity. You know, people are saying there's hardly any difference morally between the church and the world right now. Well, then, no wonder we have no testimony. No wonder we're not magnifying God. We talked with this last week. How we live matters. It matters. It's either putting speed bumps in people's way, or it is greasing the skids for the gospel. Knowledge. Our knowledge and application and understanding of God's Word. Patience. Boy, do we need that in these months. That word patience means not short-fused. How many of us have experienced and revealed a short fuse during this time? Kindness. Kindness. The the world is going to know we are Christians by our love for each other and by our kindness. Is the world hearing our kindness? Is the world seeing our kindness? I I just fear the world is seeing a bunch of angry Christians right now. That's that's my experience. The church is just a bunch of angry people. And guess what? (laughs) That's not going to win anybody. James even says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Genuine love without hypocrisy, truthful speech, the gospel of grace, the power of God. And then realize we're in a spiritual battle. Look at verse 7. The weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He's talking about a Roman soldier. Many who were right-handed, they had the sword, the offensive weapon. And the left hand, they held the shield, the defensive weapon. And we are incarnate Christ by attacking the gates of hell, by mounting an offensive of love and kindness. That's what the church is to be known for. You know, throughout history, the the church never had a strong witness when it was angry with culture. The church's witness has been most strong when she's been most humble, most loving, most kind, and most patient. We're to reflect grace incarnationally. Um, there's, there's actually a scientific term for that measures the reflection of objects from another object. It's called uh, albedo. And albedo is a factor that takes into account how much of the sun's light is reflected on some object for instance venus venus has an albedo factor of 0.65 that means 65% of the sun's light is reflected back off of venus the moon our moon you think it'd be hugely Uh, brilliant in its reflection. It would have a high albedo factor. The fact is the moon has only a 0.07 albedo factor. In other words, the moon only reflects 7% of the light of the sun that shines on it. When it comes to incarnating Christ, reflecting grace incarnationally, how much of the grace that is shining on us are we reflecting to others? Thirdly, reveal grace paradoxically. Jesus always talked about paradox. Paul does in this text, in in, uh, 2 Corinthians. When we're weak, then we're strong. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. The first will be last. If you die, you will live. When you're rich, you're poor. When you're poor, you're rich. The gospel is filled with paradox, and gospel testimony is filled with paradox as well. Look at verse 8. Treated as impostors, and yet are true. Jesus was considered a deceiver by his culture. Paul was considered a fraud. And the world looks at us as impostors and frauds as well. But neither Paul nor Jesus fought back. They simply continued to live and proclaim the truth. Look at verse 9 as unknown yet well-known. Look, we're not celebrities, but we're known by God. One of the biggest mistakes the church has made is exalting celebrities who've come to Christ. God doesn't tend to win the world through celebrities that come to Christ. God doesn't tend to lead people to Christ through famous people at all. But people like you and me, under the radar, folks, that the world's never heard about. Normal Dick and Jane. Unknown, yet known by God. As dying, and behold, we live. We're dying every day in this broken world. Our self is dying and decaying in this world. And yet, we live And it's by dying to self that our witness comes alive. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This world is not our home. Sometimes I get so frustrated with myself, and sometimes if I'm honest with others. Especially over the past nine months. I've really learned that most of us really do expect this to be our home. Most of us really are looking for this world to satisfy us. Most of us actually think that this world should work for Christians. Where, where, where where did we get that? I can tell you, not from Scripture. We're sorrowful because we recognize just how far short this world is. To what we're promised. To what will one day come. And our sorrow can lead to rejoicing if we allow our sorrow to point us to Jesus in the new Jerusalem. But our sorrow will turn to frustration if we actually think that we're going to experience the wonders of the new Jerusalem on this planet right now. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have everything in Jesus Christ. Everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours in Christ. Now here's the question. Is that where we're getting our joy? If it is, we will talk about Jesus. We'll share the gospel if we're seeking to be fulfilled in the world, and the world system, then we're going to be disappointed and we're not going to share our faith. Reveal grace paradoxically. And then fourthly and finally, represent grace relationally. Paul was so committed to these people. Look what it says in verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Have you ever laid your heart out there and somebody just stomped on it and smashed it? broke it. That happened to Paul. And he said, I'm still going to lay my heart out there. It happened to Jesus. And he said, I'm still going to lay my heart out there. One of our values at Oak Mountain is to be relationally authentic. And if you really want to see your testimony gain power, just be real, be honest with people. Be honest about your brokenness. You know, people aren't looking for Christians who have it together. They're looking for Christians who exalt the bigness of the God who is there. And we can do that when we're broken even. Because it's not about our strength. It's about the largeness of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, you are not restricted by us. We're not doing anything to hold you back. But you're restricted in your own affections. Paul is saying... My heart stands open. There's nothing you could do that could change my affections for you. And, of course, that's part of the power of the gospel, too, that God says that to us. In other words, Paul's saying, no matter what you do, I'm there for you. In other words, Paul was willing to be wronged. Paul was willing to absorb hurt from others for the sake of the gospel. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. After being beaten, tortured, spit on, a crown of thorns, nailed on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As you face the divisiveness of our country right now, are you angry? Or are you with the posture, Father? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or are even adopting a position of humility ourselves. God, forgive me. I don't know what I'm doing. Forgive me for thinking I do know what I'm doing. The point is, we're never to forget that the gospel is intensely relational. And we're not just lobbing truth at people, folks. Lobbing truth at people, they're just going to explode and be shrapnel. No, we are to incarnate the gospel relationally. We are to incarnate grace. We're to incarnate kindness. We're to incarnate love. We're to incarnate compassion. We're to incarnate pity and if the church ever recovers that, if we ever stop fighting culture and fighting issues and simply exalt Christ, we will see him grow in the eyes of others. Christianity is not primarily a culture war religion. It is not primarily an issues oriented religion. It is a Christ-centered relationship. I'm not saying issues are unimportant. But I'm saying when it comes to testimony, exalting Christ is the most important. There's a, a psychologist who uh, was, was recently interviewed by Psychology Today, and he said the most amazing thing. He said that a change in culture can occur if only 2% of the population expound that vision and incarnate that vision. 2%! There's, there's more than 2% Christians in our community! There's more than 2% Christians in our country. There's more than 2% Christians in our world. And if we would just recapture the old vision of the gospel, which is would be in our day a new vision of the gospel, if we would simply focus on magnifying Christ and nothing else, God would show up in people's lives and all the issues we're freaked out about, he would deal with in their lives as they come to Christ. What if you determined to live like Paul, to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified? How would God use the 2% of us who might be willing to do just that. Let's pray. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that maybe you open their eyes to the death of Christ, the wonder of His life, the resurrection, God, may they pray a prayer that says, Jesus, I'm, I'm broken, I'm needy, uh, I can't deliver myself, I can't make you love me. But the gospel is that If I put my trust in Christ, you'll forgive me and love me forever. Lord, may people pray that prayer if they haven't. And Lord, for the rest of us, may we be so excited about Jesus, we can't keep quiet about him. May we be so enthralled with grace, we have to talk about it. God, we don't need to be told to share our faith. Not if we're really in love with you. And not if we're overwhelmed by the gospel. And so, God, overwhelm us with the gospel and with yourself and help us to magnify you in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.